0: from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit Trinitygracesa.org. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, our young disciples, young followers of Jesus, as always, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about disobedient children. A story about disobedient children. Second, listen for the name of the king who was ruling in Jerusalem when Isaiah wrote chapter 9. Who was the king in Jerusalem when Isaiah Isaiah wrote chapter 9? And third, listen for why the last week of Jesus's life seemed so strange. In what ways was the last week of Jesus's life strange? Well, this is the portion of our service where we open the Bible in hopes of understanding what it says and how it applies to our specific lives. And today marks the third Sunday of Advent. And as we've mentioned each week, Advent is a word that means arrival or coming. And the Advent season occurs the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And it's a season characterized by waiting, hoping, and longing for our Savior to arrive, to come, and to be with us. And as some of you will know, we've been engaged in a mini-sermon series through the season of Advent. During this season, we have been slowing way down really considering just one part of one verse found in Isaiah chapter 9. In the book of Isaiah, we get a picture of a peculiar figure Figure who's highlighted through the prophet's writing. And this figure is peculiar because Isaiah identifies him as a baby or as a child. But what's strange is that this is no normal baby. This child will actually be called names reserved for God alone. And we see four specific names given to this coming child in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. Two weeks ago, we considered how this coming child would be characterized by supernatural wisdom as we considered the title Wonderful Counselor. Last week, we reflected on how this child would have supernatural strength and power as we considered the title Mighty God. And this week, we move to consider the third title attributed to the coming Savior, and it's a name that doesn't mean what you think it does. It, it, is, it's, it isn't easy to understand the import of this name on the surface. In fact, it's probably the most difficult title to appreciate at face value. And this morning, we're going to be considering how the promised Messiah will take on the title Everlasting Father. So let's begin by reading our passage. You follow along as I read from Isaiah chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them his light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. If you have children or if you've been a child, which we all have, I'm fairly confident that you have heard a phrase that goes something like this. You are not the boss of me. Or you can't tell me what to do. We've all uttered these kind of phrases at some point in our life. And if you're a parent, you've likely heard it coming from the mouth of your young child. And depending on how young the child is when these phrases are first uttered, it can be pretty comical, can't it? You can't tell me what to do. Well, (laughs) I don't know about that, buddy. Maybe the child didn't want to take a bath, go to bed, eat their vegetables. I don't know what it could have been. But no matter what the situation might be, the sentiment's the same. You can't tell me what to do. I can manage my own life. No one has the right to control my decisions. And while that phrase can be a bit comical, coming from a toddler's mouth who really does need someone to take care of them, it's not as funny when we see the same sentiment coming from our own hearts as adults, is it? You see, bucking authority and throwing off proper constraints, it's not just a problem that children have to deal with. As children grow into adults, the sentiment continues deep inside each person's heart. We just hide it better sometimes. The language might change from you're not the boss of me to don't tell me what to do. Or I'm free to make my own decisions or mind your own business. We all have a hard time with authority. We all bristle when someone else tells us what to do. We're all allergic to some degree from taking direction from another person. After all, it's a free country. I can say whatever I want. No one can tell me what to do. And this resistance to authority, it really cuts across demographics, across socioeconomic lines, across nation-state boundaries. This posture is there because it's buried deep inside each person's fallen heart. Our resistance to authority, it's a human problem, and it's due to the sin that resides in each of our hearts, where we believe that we can live autonomous lives, that we can make the best decisions for ourselves without help from the outside. But if you stop and actually give this mentality some thought, we'd have to conclude that we really can't properly function that way. Just think about what happens when appropriate authorities are removed from a child's life. Think about how society devolves into chaos when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. You actually get a picture of what that looks like in the darkest book of the Bible, the book of Judges in the Old Testament. We can't live without authority. There'd be no flourishing possible if we are all completely autonomous doing what was right in our own eyes. The bottom line is that we typically want to be king. We want to rule. We want to call the shots. But we know that when we're king, when we have complete control, things don't always go well. Just consider our first parents, Adam and Eve. Back in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible... They were living in perfect harmony with God and one another and with creation while they were living under God's authority, under His standards that were meant to lead them to peace and joy and life. But as soon as they sought their own way, as soon as they sought to live without God's authority, they experienced pain and separation and dysfunction and death. You see, autonomy or self as authority... It may sound like freedom, but it actually leads to slavery and chaos and malfunction as we relate to God and to one another. What we need isn't autonomy. It'll never lead to the peace that we think it will. No, what we need is appropriate authority over us. I mean, think of how cruel it actually is for a child to have no authority in their lives. No guidance, no restraints, no parameters. And in much the same way, when we are void of authority in our lives, we are liable to make poor decisions, to create misery for ourselves, to promote more chaos in the world. So with all this in mind, it shouldn't surprise us that the scriptures constantly, explicitly, and implicitly remind us that we need a king. We need a king. Now, you might be wondering at this point in the sermon, why in the world are we talking about kings right now? I didn't even see the word king in our passage this morning. And you would be right. Sure, in verse 7, we see talk that touches on the idea of a king, where we see phrases like, of the increase of his government on the throne of David, over his kingdom. Clearly, this child that Isaiah speaks of is going to be some sort of royalty. But the word king isn't found in verse 6, is it? And it certainly doesn't seem to fit with the title we're considering this morning, But there's more to the title Everlasting Father than first meets the eye. What does Isaiah mean when he tells us that the Savior's name will be Everlasting Father? Well, if you fancy yourself a theologian, you've got a problem that needs a resolution right off the bat here. So let's work out this together for just a minute, if you'll go with me. We know that Jesus is God. But he's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, which means he's distinct from God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So what's being said here? If Jesus is called Everlasting Father, how do we make sense of this since he's not God the Father? What does this title mean? Well, it'd be helpful to imagine yourself an Israelite in 700 BC and consider how you would understand what Isaiah is saying. And it would be helpful to know that there are instances in the Old Testament where kings are referred to as fathers. You actually see David call King Saul his father. But we know that Saul wasn't David's biological father. But in that instance, David is using the title to respectfully refer to a chief or a ruler or an elder, which is how the term father was often used in that culture. And so in this context, when an Israelite would have heard Isaiah use the term father, what would come to mind is the role of a king. A father here is a benevolent protector, which is the task of the ideal king. So we've worked it out, haven't we? At least a little. Isaiah isn't using the Trinitarian title father for the Messiah. Rather, he's portraying the coming Messiah, the child he speaks of, as an everlasting king. So knowing that, let's turn and consider why this coming king is going to be such good news for us. The primary job of a king is to provide for and to protect his people. Now, it's worth noting that kings in Isaiah's time were by and large not good. In fact, instead of being good, we might call them terrible. In Israel's history, we see unrighteous king after unrighteous king occupying the throne. In fact, when Isaiah is writing, there's a king in Jerusalem named Ahaz. And the calling Ahaz had was to lead God's people in righteousness and faithful worship. But but do you know what Ahaz did during his reign? He pushed the altar of the Lord to the side in the temple. And he built altars to foreign gods. And he even sacrificed his own son to Melech, a Canaanite deity whose name literally means king of shame. Ahaz was a monster of a king, leading people into deeper depravity and chaos and insecurity. And against that backdrop, that monstrous backdrop, Isaiah begins talking about an everlasting father who will bring light into darkness, whose government shall know no end, who will sit on the throne of David. Isaiah tells God's people that there's a king coming who will be like a father to you, who will care for you. Now, Isaiah could have used the word king in verse 6. He had that in his vocabulary, but instead he uses the term father, which as we mentioned would often refer to a chief or a ruler. But it's a term that not only conveys authority, it also conveys character. It conveys compassion. It conveys tender concern. Jesus is the king who came to provide for and to protect his people. Jesus is the everlasting father that Isaiah 9 points to, the everlasting king. And since he knows better than we do, we can trust him and go where he leads. After all, it's his desire to lead you beside quiet waters and into green pastures. It's his desire to walk with you through the dark valleys of life. He protects you with his rod and he keeps you in place with his staff. Jesus is the good king that we need in our lives. The authority that it will lead us to flourishing. The ruler who loves his subjects. The King Isaiah speaks of will have the government on his shoulders. And his rule will never come to an end. He'll be the one that rules with fairness and justice for all eternity. Which takes us to how this father is described with the word everlasting. Now we have a hard time wrapping our minds around having a king. We've never had one physically in our lives. We're a democratic republic, right? And we certainly have a hard time appreciating what an everlasting ruler might look like. After all, we get the chance to change our officials every two to four years if we want. But the everlasting father will never stand for re-election. He'll never give up his seat. He'll always perfectly rule and reign. And this would have been very comforting to Isaiah's original audience, just like it should be for us. This is because in their time, kings were constantly rising and falling, coming and going. In the span of Isaiah's own ministry, you might know that he saw at least three different kings take the throne in Jerusalem. And here's the thing, all that political turnover, it created a culture of instability and uncertainty. That was because a new king could wreak havoc and ruin your life. When a new king came to power, you never knew what you were going to get. He could be a good king and do great things. But then the next one comes along and destroys all the good that was done. And this was the way it went with the kings in Israel. There was no permanence, no stability, and really no hope that things would get better because of that. It could cause great distress and anxiety, as you might imagine. cause great pain and misery for those dealing with the economic collapse or the famines or the war an incompetent or evil king could bring about. It was a seminary professor and counselor, Ed Welch, who once said, anxiety is the anticipation of a bad outcome. Anxiety is the anticipation of a bad outcome. And the good news for us is that we get to follow our king into his everlasting realm. And under his reign, there are no ultimate bad outcomes. Jesus is the benevolent king of the uncertain future for us to the anxiety, the stress, the instability, the uncertainty of constant political upheaval, God promises that his chosen king is going to have an everlasting reign. Once he starts his reign, it will never stop. But we could imagine how an everlasting king wouldn't automatically be comforting in and of itself, right? A king whose reign knows no end isn't necessarily good news because what if he's awful? What if he's like King Ahaz and he has a permanent rule? That wouldn't be good news. But the everlasting father promised in Isaiah chapter 9 is one who is good, true, beautiful. One who puts your interests ahead of his own. One who promises to defend and to protect you. One who promises to never leave you nor forsake you. One who provides for all of your needs in extravagant and gracious ways. And as we follow this gracious and powerful king... We are invited to seek first his kingdom, not build our own kingdoms. We're called to bend our will and our desires to what he wants, to joyfully serve him out of gratitude for what he's done for us. In short, we are called to follow our king in the rules of the kingdom, to embrace his ways and his rule. And like we mentioned earlier, we need authority in our lives. We need a king who is willing to show us what faithfulness really looks like who, who We need rules to flourish. And thankfully, our everlasting Father Jesus graciously shows us what it looks like to walk through this world perfectly, to walk faithfully, to love well. But here's the thing, and you've got to grasp this. The rules and the ways of King Jesus will break you if you don't have a new heart. They will frustrate you if you're still dead in your sin. They'll disappoint you if you use the rules to try to gain God's favor. But if you have a new heart, if Jesus has given you new life, if you've embraced him through faith, if you know you already have God's favor despite your obedience, then the rules become beautiful. They lead you to a life of wholeness. They reveal how life works best. And we can joyfully follow the rules and the ways of our king out of gratitude, never to earn his love. We already have all of that we can get. But as a response to the grace and love we've already received, we need to be taught how to live. Like a teenager needs to be taught how to drive. I'm experiencing that right now. Parents, if you've got kids of driving age, you know what that's like. You can't just assume your teenager knows how to operate a vehicle. Here's the keys, bud. Bring it back. That wouldn't end well. You assume they need instruction to be told which pedal is the gas, which is the brake. You can't assume anything. To practice turning the wheel, to get used to the speed, to know the rules of the road so they might flourish and so that others on the road are safe. We need rules. We need instruction. We need guidance. In discipleship, what's the definition of discipleship? Discipleship means continually being shaped and formed into newness of life and faithful living as we follow King Jesus. Discipleship is a continually reorganization of our priorities in life, our desires, our actions. Discipleship is following Jesus, seeking to emulate His way of life as we read it in the pages of the Gospels, listening to His encouragements and His invitations. And we could talk all morning about the rules and ways of Jesus, couldn't we? But if we wanted to boil it down, we don't have to wonder what the raw material of following Jesus looks like because he told us. On multiple occasions, Jesus tells us what the greatest commandment is. He tells us the path that sums up the entirety of the whole Old Testament law. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was asked to summarize the Old Testament law? When asked what the greatest commandment is, He says that it's love for God and love for neighbor. In fact, one of Jesus' closest followers on earth would later write that Jesus' followers would be known by what? In the book of 1 John. Jesus' followers would be known by their defense of the truth, their theological precision, their social concern, their political engagement, their hot takes on social media, their awesome parenting, their righteousness. No! While those things might be good and important, they aren't the primary thing we're called to be known for as followers of Christ. John says that those who follow Jesus will be known by their love. Love for God, love for neighbor. Jesus' ideal for his followers is love for God and neighbor. If we want to honor our king, we'll be focused on what humble, self-sacrificial love calls for in each and every situation we encounter. It's a high calling. And it's exactly what our Everlasting Father, our King, did in coming to rescue us and coming to love us. He came looking for a group of people who were not looking for him. He came to show God's love and grace and mercy for people who deserved none of those things. He came to lay down his life for his enemies. And that's not the people out there, that's you and me. He came to adopt those who naturally hated him into his family, giving us a status that we could never earn in a future beyond our wildest imagination. What an unusual king we have. Our king gives, he doesn't take. He serves, he doesn't demand. Jesus is a king who isn't going to sacrifice someone else. He sacrificed himself so that we might have good things. He's the everlasting father who will sit on David's throne forever. And I wonder if you could pinpoint the time in Christ's life here on earth where he looked most kingly. When does Jesus look like a king on the pages of the Gospels? Well, it has to be during the last week of his life. But it all looks a bit strange, doesn't it? Remember how Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Entering the city as a conquering king? entering the city to accomplish his mission. But there was no war horse. Instead, he rode a donkey. He wasn't honored by the soldiers. Instead, they reviled him and spit on him. There was no royal robe for him to enjoy. Instead, he endured his shame unclothed and completely exposed. There was no scepter in his hand. Instead, he gets a flimsy reed. He didn't wear a crown of gold. Instead, he wore thorns on his head. And he certainly didn't sit on a throne. Instead, he hung on a cross. And he did all of this so that he might rescue his people. So that he might defeat the spiritual forces of darkness and sin. What a king we have. Jesus didn't come to kill his enemies. He came to die for them. Paul touches on this in Romans 5 when he writes, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus is an everlasting father and his rule and reign will last forever. And as his subjects, that is good news for us this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for your rule and your reign through Christ, your Son, our Lord. We pray that as we continue to walk through this world, that you would draw us close to him, that we would be dependent upon our King for all of our needs, for all of our protections, and that we might emulate and follow his rules and his ways as we seek to show your grace, mercy, and love to a world that desperately needs it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.